Welcome to the CME podcast focused on the IBD medical home, particularly its role in preventive health maintenance for patients with IBD. Topics such as vaccination, screening, mental health, and coordinated care are covered. The podcast features interviews between Dr. Miguel Riguero, Chair of the Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Cleveland Clinic, and several healthcare professionals about these topics. You will also hear a visit with one of Dr. Riguero's patients, Aaron. Let's start with Dr. Riguero's interview with Ann Sullivan, a nurse practitioner at the Cleveland Clinic, about her role in preventive care in the IBD medical home. Annie, you're such an important part of our medical home as a nurse practitioner taking care of inflammatory bowel disease patients. And I really see the role of the APP evolving over time into an important provider in our team-based care models. I know the patients, a lot of times when I see them in clinic, they link to you even more than the physician and the team because Mm -hmm. that's a natural bond that they form. So today, I'd like to talk a little bit about our medical home, your role, but also maybe get into some specific ideas we have about health maintenance. So let's start with vaccinations. We know that vaccinations are an important part of our care of inflammatory bowel disease. Our patients often are on immunosuppressive therapy. We want to prevent infections. You've done a lot of work and great education around vaccinations. Tell us from a nurse practitioner standpoint, and you specifically, what's the role that you play related to vaccinations with our Crohn's and colitis patients? So with our IBD medical home, Mm -hmm. vaccinations are extremely important. The role the nurse practitioner plays, especially the role that I play, is predominantly educating on vaccines, counseling patients on vaccines, as well as administering vaccines in the clinic. It's extremely important to provide education to the patients as to why they need the vaccines as well. They, it's important to let them know that the vaccines will help with preventative health care, preventing influenza, preventing pneumonia, as well as shingles. Um, prior to our vaccine talk and prior starting to on um, immunosuppressants, we do screen for tuberculosis as well as hepatitis B. And then if they were to need a hepatitis B vaccine, I educate on that as well. Good. So you're talking a lot about, you know, some of the blood tests we do for screening for things like hepatitis B and maybe even hepatitis A and varicella. But then the role you play not only in education, but I like the fact that you've in our electronic medical record really adhere to this best practice alert or health maintenance checklist. So I can see you when you're talking to patients as a nurse practitioner, almost in your mind going down the vaccines and some of this preventative care. The other fact of screening for TB, we didn't think about that, but that's not something we can vaccinate against, but very Mm -hmm. important to screen uh, for that as well. And the fact that you provide the education to the patients about vaccines, I think is really critical. Um, Anything else, uh, the vaccines themselves, I know you said that you're starting to administer them. Any questions that patients have to you about vaccines or concerns that they raise or um, how's that going? I know there's been a lot in the media, which I don't wanna get into that as much, but they must ask you questions about vaccines. They do, and they ask me specifically regarding the pneumonia vaccine. So we like to administer the pneumonia vaccines at any age when they Mm -hmm. have IBD. And that kind of confuses them because they ask, well, I'm not 65 and older, so I have to, so I provide education that because you're immunocompromised and because we have you on a biologic, it's important that you receive the pneumonia vaccines. And then with the influenza vaccine, the intramuscular, I advise them to only receive the 
shot as opposed to the intranasal because that is a live vaccine. And we also, I address not receiving live vaccines while in being immunocompromised and on immunosuppressants as well, Good. meaning the MMR, varicella. Um, but we do screen for varicella and Good. as well as the EBV. Yeah, no, I think you hit on something important. We don't want to give a live vaccine to somebody who's immunosuppressed. Mm -hmm. Probably it's okay, but we do not recommend that right yes. now. So I think you mentioned some of the live vaccines and I think some of the prevention. And one point you've brought up a couple times, which I think is important, still in our inflammatory bowel disease patients, one of the most common infections is influenza, so getting the flu vax. But we don't think of this, but one of the most common reasons for serious infection and even death, which is really rare in our patients, is pneumonia and pneumococcal pneumonia. So I like the fact that you're educating our patients in the medical home about all vaccines, but really stressing that it's not an age-dependent time to get the pneumococcal vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's really any age. Mm -hmm. So let's let's shift gears for a minute. And so the vaccines, I think that's that's great, um, and I think that's very important. What about cancer screening? So you know there are things that our patients aren't maybe aware of related to skin cancer, or cancer in general. I know again you've done a great job with these checklists. Tell me about the cancer screening that you do. So the cancer screening that, we, that I do in the clinic, I always screen for skin cancer. I address skin cancer risks with the patients being melanoma, basal cell carcinoma, or squamous cell carcinoma as well. I encourage them to see a dermatologist on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. If they ever have any unusual skin lesion that they see, a mole that's getting larger, darker in color, I'd like them to let or call me and let me know, and then I have them see their dermatologist. So it doesn't necessarily need to be on it. It needs to be on an annual basis, but if anything comes up, they need to be screened as well. And I encourage them to wear a sunscreen on a, on a daily basis, even if it's in the winter time, um, specifically SPF 50 or above. Great. Great. So I think that's a lot of times our patients don't realize a couple of things. Uh, skin cancers, like you said, even the non-melanoma skin cancers, which mm -hmm. are probably more common than we think, the basal cell, the squamous cell cancer, especially with some of our medicines seem to bring them out. So having an awareness of that, the yearly dermatology visits, the SPF 50 sunscreen, which even in the winter is very important to use as well. I, I mean, yeah. I think that's really important. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's great. Let's uh, again look at some other aspects of things I know and hear that you talk about in the clinic all the time. Now, bone health, uh, you know, you and I were talking earlier today and we saw a patient last week who was worried about osteoporosis. Um, talk to me a little bit about screening for bone health or what the role of bone health screening is and what you do. So with um, bone health, we always check a bone density scan if they have been on steroids for three months or longer. And I also like to get an annual density, bone density scan as well. Um, and also if they have new onset joint pain, um, that helps benefit to see what the joint pain is from. Either it's from their IBD mm -hmm. being active, or it can also be from development of osteopenia or osteoporosis. So a bone density scan or DEXA scan is extremely important in uh, monitoring for osteopenia, osteoporosis, Right, so I think just to reiterate something you said, corticosteroids, prednisone being the most common, any age we know that it can cause bone demineralization. So it sounds like you do 
a lot of times our patients have been on more than three months of cumulative steroids at some point, that probably doing a DEXA or bone densitometer as a screening is good. And then maybe yearly if they have osteopenia, or at least every few years, certainly women more common than men, certainly over the age of 50. So I think that's important because we don't think about it, but fractures and problems over time can occur. Yes. Mm-hmm. The other thing I noticed that a lot of patients, probably more for you with you as a provider and an APP than us as the physician, may bring up aspects of stress or depression mm-hmm. or anxiety. Um, parts of the visit that a lot of patients don't want to talk about, whether it's a stigma or being worried about it. But tell me as far as screening for depression, anxiety, how do you do that in the medical home? And then just in general, how do you approach these patients who talk to you about stress? So in engaging the patients with mental health issues, the most important aspect and best tip I have is to engage the patient's trust. Because if you if they trust you and you have a therapeutic rapport with the patient, that's the most important. So they feel they can be comfortable with you and express their concerns of stress, anxiety, depression. Um, we have we're lucky to have a psychologist on yeah. our team who we often to have them step in to the office visits with us to further um, address mental health issues. We also can talk about CBT therapy, Mm -hmm. stress reduction techniques, and then at every office visit, I feel like it's very important to address mental health and see how their progression is going after working with the psychologist on a continual basis. Good, so it sounds like they're bringing up a lot of this stress with you and you're prompting them, whether it be cognitive behavioral therapy, like you said, CBT with a psychologist. Um, And then I'm curious, do you, do any screening surveys or questionnaires for depression or anxiety or how do you, I know sometimes that that came up, you brought that up the other day with Mm -hmm. a patient. I'm curious, Mm -hmm. how do you do that or what do you do? Yeah, so I typically review the PHQ-9 or PHQ-2. I ask the patient over the past two weeks, how have you been feeling? Over the past two weeks, have you lost interest in activities? Do you feel more fatigued? Are you unable to go out with your friends because you're feeling depressed. Right, so that's Um, for mm -hmm. depression, right? That score? Okay, good. Mm -hmm. And then as far as anything else that you do or any other tricks of the trade for us as uh, providers in terms of stress management or or just get them in with the psychologist early? So get them in with the psychologist, but also I like to reiterate what the psychologist reviews with the patients and to see if they have any further questions. Um, I encourage the patient if they are stressed or anxious because of possibly a new IBD diagnosis or they have active IBD for years, I advise them and encourage them that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Your stress, your anxiety is, we're gonna help you decrease it. Um, And I feel especially the IBD medical home team, it's similar to like a one-stop shop. So Mm -hmm. the patients can see the nurse practitioner, physician, nutritionist, and psychologist all in one stop. And that takes a lot of stress off the patient and the family members and a lot of burden off of them as well. So they don't have to go out and make appointments with everyone, they can just see them in one. So I think that also helps our stress levels. That's great, that's perfect. And I was gonna, I was gonna end kind of with asking you about, from a community standpoint, talking about the medical home and the team, this kind of team of teams concept mm-hmm. where 
we work together, the one-stop shop, as you said, for the patient, which even into itself relieves or alleviates a lot of stress. What, what would you want, say, the community physician out there that maybe doesn't have a medical home, what would you want them to know about um, our medical home or other medical homes where we have this kind of patient-centered approach? What would you tell the community provider, the APP, uh, in terms of the medical home? So I would explain it to them that it's very beneficial for the patients and the family members as it's a one-stop shop, as, as you alluded to as mm -hmm. well. Um, and it also does prevent stress for the patient and extra burden on the patient. Um, if the community providers do not have a medical home, I would suggest referring patients to a nutritionist or a psychologist, but then follow up with the nutrition psychologist, maybe send a message prior to the office visit, give a history of the patient, and as to why they need to be seen by the nutritionist or psychologist, and that can kind of open up dialogue of communication between the community provider and the nutrition nutritionist and psychologist. Good. So it sounds well. like even if a community physician doesn't have this built-in medical home, which most don't, I think mm -hmm. outside of kind of these clinical academic centers, that's difficult. What I'm hearing you say is an APP1 can play a large role in the community practice as almost a primary provider of Crohn's and colitis patients but two, almost make a medical home out of referrals to dietitians or nutritionists in the community, working with uh, psychosocial care, so psychologists, even social workers. Mm -hmm. So I like that idea of you can build a team, even if a team doesn't exist, in your own backyard, if you will. Yeah. And then for those that are accessible to a center like Cleveland Clinic, referring into a medical home as well. So. This is great. I think your role as a nurse practitioner has been wonderful. It's really helped advance our patient care and the medical home concept. And thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Next, we will hear Dr. Reguero talk with Anna Bondar, a primary care pharmacist at the Cleveland Clinic, about the role that pharmacists can play in the care of patients with IBD. So we're talking today about medical homes and the role of the pharmacist in not only a primary care medical home, but with what we're developing here at Cleveland Clinic in the inflammatory bowel disease medical home. So let me ask you, as far as a pharmacist's role in the primary care medical home, tell me what the pharmacist role is and your role specifically. In the primary care medical home, I'm embedded within the practice. I work elbow to elbow with the primary care physicians advanced practice providers and any trainees that come through. And I'm really there to manage chronic disease. So co-manage medications, make changes to the regimen under a consult agreement. In Ohio, there's actually a consult agreement for pharmacists to be able to co-manage disease states with physicians. And so every day I have patients on my schedule that I see for diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and I can see them monthly or even more frequently in between physician appointments to be able to really get their therapy at, their, at its maximum and get their treatment goals. Great, so you're really part of the team and as we look to do the same thing in the specialty medical home for IBD, I think the pharmacist is critical because the medicines that the patients are on. One of the other things, and it's interesting you mentioned chronic diseases that we're very interested in, is vaccinations and the role of vaccinations, obviously, in preventing infection. And you mentioned things like diabetes and hypertension and heart disease. And for inflammatory bowel disease, a lot of our patients on our immunosuppressive therapies. Mm -hmm. 
So tell me, how do you, as a pharmacist, the role in vaccinations and prevention and educating the patients, what's, what's that about? How does that work for Definitely. you? Definitely. So we're uniquely positioned to be able to know what vaccines patients are due for, knowing the vaccination schedules. And specifically with immunosuppressive therapy, we need to be able to make sure they're taking their vaccines before therapy, making sure they're not using any live vaccines during therapy, and then making sure they're caught up with vaccinations after therapy. And then the one unique thing, patients often disclose to us their barriers to getting vaccinated or even some misconceptions regarding vaccines. And so as a pharmacist, I'm uniquely positioned to be able to educate the patient on vaccinations and their importance to make sure we prevent those infectious diseases. And I think that's so critical since there's been a lot of media news around the stigma of vaccinations. And really what we're learning is the importance of vaccinations and preventing these these complications, these infections, that's so important. So I really do think the pharmacist is the front line. Definitely. And I think you interface sometimes a lot with the patients, even more than the physician or the health team, because you're talking about their medicines, their vaccinations. How do you take into account their comorbidities? So how do you look at the whole patient, this kind of patient-centered, patient-first approach? What, what's your role in terms of that as a pharmacist? With every new patient, we conduct a comprehensive medication review. We make sure that every medication has a disease state, has a diagnosis, and if there's anything missing, we alert the physician. So the comprehensive approach making sure every medication has an indication. And on the other hand, making sure every disease state has the appropriate treatment and there's no lapse, whether in refills or there's cost associated that the patients can't manage. So looking at all their comorbidities, looking at drug-drug interactions, looking at drug-disease interactions, so making sure their comorbidities have the correct treatment, are monitored appropriately, and then alerting the physician if there's any issues in terms of that. That's great. So, so vital. You mentioned the drug-drug interaction. Mm -hmm. A lot of our inflammatory bowel disease patients and a lot of the patients you see and we see together aren't just on one medicine, they're on multiple medicines. So how do these interact, not only together, but with their disease? A couple other things that you mentioned that are so important, adherence. Mm -hmm. We're learning, as you know and you've taught me, that adherence to medicines are so important in terms of their disease and controlling their disease and cost might be a barrier. And sometimes patients stop medicines because they can't afford them or they don't understand why they're taking them. Mm -hmm. So I really think that's important. How do you educate the patients? How, as a pharmacist embedded in our mm -hmm. medical home teams, whether it's inflammatory bowel mm -hmm. disease or primary care, what's your role in educating the patient? Well, there are many venues for education, whether it's the in-person, the face-to-face, -face, whether it's over the phone or even incorporating virtual visits. We always utilize shared decision-making. So it's not just what we want, what the team wants, but it's what the patient wants and understands for themselves. So making sure we explain all of the risks, the benefits of treatment, the alternatives that are available and making sure the patient feels like they're going home with the full picture and not just told what drug to take. So that's really what we do. Great. And I like your shared decision mm -hmm. making. That's been an emphasis for mm -hmm. us in Crohn's and colitis care. This idea that you're working together on this narrative, this journey with the patient through their disease process, making sure they understand, making sure they're comfortable, mm -hmm. educating why are you taking this mm -hmm. medicine, how it works 
side effects, risk benefit, mm -hmm. what to look out for, but the benefit of the medicine itself. Yeah. And then I guess uh, finally, maybe some take home points, but take home points specific to the community physicians. Mm -hmm. so obviously we're sitting at main campus Cleveland Clinic. There are a lot right. of big academic centers. Most of us don't work in academic medical mm -hmm. centers. How do you interface or what's the role of the pharmacist in the community and community practices? How should the physicians or providers in the community look to work with pharmacists? So what we always say is drugs don't work in patients who don't take them. So even though now we have some of the best treatment for inflammatory bowel disease, if the patient's not going to be adherent to it, not going to pick it up from the pharmacy due to cost, then what benefit is the patient gaining from a theoretical treatment? So the pharmacist is uniquely positioned to make sure the therapy is actually being taken, that it's affordable, that the patient's being monitored appropriately, that they know what to expect from treatment, and so they actually stay on the therapy and get better. And that's what I think community physicians, academic physicians can all benefit from having a pharmacist in oh, place. Oh, and I agree. I know that working with you and working with your pharmacist team, mm -hmm. that's very important because the patients, sometimes we don't have enough time as physicians or providers yeah. and having the pharmacist do that. I actually had a community physician in rural Ohio mm -hmm. call me and tell me one of the biggest links he has is his community pharmacist mm -hmm. because he doesn't have time to explain everything with the medicines. The pharmacist does a lot of the administration, the information about cost and adherence and right. those types of and things. And if you can imagine that person being side to side next to you in the office, what a world of difference. One stop shopping, the patient gets all that care in one place. And I think the team, so we're getting in this team of teams approach. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that a lot at Cleveland Clinic and at other places and having the pharmacist part of that team is so important. So, yeah. great, this has been wonderful for me, Anna. Thanks good. for everything that you do for our patients. Of course, thank and, you for uh, having me. We'll keep up with the good work that you're doing. Will do, Thanks. thank you. Now let's hear Dr. Reguero talk with Stacy Cavagnaro, a dietitian at the Cleveland Clinic, about her role in the IBD medical home. So Stacy, I know that you've been working with me now in the IBD medical home for a while, and you know that the biggest Thing that patients ask and the question that they ask is diet. So what should I eat? Did something I eat cause IBD? So tell me, what, how, do you, how do you approach that? What do you tell our patients about diet? What's the role of diet? What's the evidence for diet in IBD? Yeah. So we know that there's no, no specific dietary factor that causes IBD, but we do know um, that environmental factors play a role and diet is just one of many things involved in kind of the trigger, the progression of IBD. Um, there are two main diets that there are some evidence on for IBD, one of which is the Mediterranean diet, mm -hmm. which really focuses on reducing inflammation that's been used in cardiology for years before we started thinking if it can reduce inflammation and prevent heart attack and stroke, can it also reduce inflammation in the bowel? So that's focusing more on um, you know, your good fats, anti-inflammatory, and we believe that it has an effect in the microbiome mm -hmm. and the makeup of the bacteria in the gut to reduce inflammation in the bowel. The other diet we use a lot, which is much harder to follow, but we think maybe more effective actually, is the specific carbohydrate diet, right. which focuses on 
um, consuming simple carbs, our monosaccharides, and reducing our complex carbs, which are more difficult to digest, which can contribute, one, to more diarrhea, and two, again, affecting that microbiome. So preliminary studies have shown that with this specific carbohydrate diet, there is a shift in the makeup of the gut microbiome, um, moving away from that dysbiosis that we see with IBD, which in turn reduces inflammation. So those are the two that we have some evidence for. There's actually a big study going on right now comparing the two to see which, if, if one is better than the other. Um, how we kind of decide is meeting people where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of our patients have a lot of stressors from their disease, so putting a super strict elimination diet on them on top of that may not be appropriate for every patient. Um, so we really go by symptoms, patients' readiness to change, how badly they want to try a diet, and go from there. Um, there's also some diets that we use when we think that there may be some overlap of IBS or um, gluten sensitivity, so we might try a gluten-free diet or we might try the low FODMAP diet, and we do have patients that have good luck with that as well. So we don't know what in diet causes IBD or if even diet causes that, but I like how you mentioned the environment probably plays a role. We're seeing an explosion of inflammatory bowel disease worldwide, probably, unfortunately, our great American diet, mm -hmm. high in sugar, high in fat, plays a role, as you allude to. And now that we see somebody, and I, I was thinking the other day in clinic, when you and I were seeing patients together, probably 75% of the patients were asking about the diet. I also like how you mentioned the microbiome. We do think that the microbiome changes in relation to diet, and the microbiome probably plays a role for inflammation. So you mentioned the, the Crohn's disease diets, the ulcerative colitis uh, diets, looking at the Mediterranean diet, looking at the specific carbohydrate diet, and the CD Dine study that's going on now, talking about the evidence, comparing the two diets and seeing which would work. And then obviously patients are stressed, so we have to be realistic with them. I mean, if they come in and they're feeling terribly and we're telling them they can't eat all of these things, then they get more stressed about their diet. So, so I really look, like how you've integrated into the medical home team. You become a, an important member in the treatment pathway. So let me switch gears for a minute. So, you know, we saw, I was thinking yesterday, we saw some patients together who are actually flaring, who are actually malnourished. They've lost a lot of weight. Maybe their vitamins are down. What, how do you approach the patient who's flaring and maybe malnourished to help them gain weight? Definitely. So during a flare, my goal is kind of stabilization. So we want them, first things first, to stop losing any more weight if they're losing weight. We want to try to reduce the symptoms as best we can. Um, so sometimes that means stripping back the diet to something more bland. So this isn't where we start a very um, hard to follow elimination kind of diet. We start kind of a GI soft diet, so eliminating a lot of raw fruits and veggies and nuts and things that are difficult to digest to help with the symptoms. Um, we may add in some oral supplements to help, um, and we do it like a prescription so that the patient knows they have to do it because right. it's like a medication to keep their weight stable. So that's kind of our first goal in a flare. Um, some patients, even when they're not flaring, are still malnourished or you know, they're in a flare and it, they're kind of going down, down, down. 
Um, so regardless of if they're flaring or not, we do have a couple other options. So I do a lot of weight gain or at least stabilization with a lot of these patients. Where we start one is might be supplements, increasing the overall intake best we can, small frequent meals. We look at where we can add more fats or weight gainers to the diet to increase the overall caloric intake. Um, part of that too is help from the physicians mm -hmm. in helping to increase absorption to help um, reduce the malabsorption. So whether that's getting them into remission or whether that is starting antidiarrheals or things like that to help them absorb so they're not losing as much as well. If it's more of an intake issue where they're just um, they just can't eat enough to sustain themselves, then we may start them on enteral nutrition or tube feeding. Um, if it is more that they're just malabsorbing and there's nothing we can do to keep uh, the weight on, then we might have to consider um, a consult to start parenteral nutrition. So it sounds like there's a real spectrum. So when patients yeah. are flaring, like you said, oftentimes we try to control the inflammation first. Mm -hmm. And maybe during that time, we don't put them on a specific carbohydrate or even a Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. We really want to, like you said, stabilize their diet, get them better, heal the inflammation. Um, we like to use their gut. So I like what you said. We try to keep them eating normal food and, and maybe it's blander. If they have a stricture in Crohn's, avoiding that real roughage or the nuts, the, the raw fruits and vegetables, which sometimes can get caught in those strictures. Mm -hmm. But then, as you said, even going into some of our severe malnourished patients, you helped me with a patient the other day who was on tube feeding, so using the gut, but we needed to supplement beyond what they could eat or drink. And then finally, the total parental nutrition for the real malnourished patients. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned dietary supplements. You know, this is another thing that comes up quite a bit, or patients, people in general, like to do things naturally. What's, what's the data on diet supplements or kind of these complementary things that patients might have access to? What's, what do you tell patients? What do you say about that? Definitely. I would say probably at least half of the patients that see me ask about um, kind of the integrative, more natural approaches to IBD. Um, so I do talk about diet and the diet that we have. That's kind of the, one of the more natural things that we do and you know sometimes you're okay with starting that before we even start medication or before we ramp up medication we allow um, the diet to kind of take effect in terms of supplements we're seeing some data that turmeric um, mm -hmm. can help reduce inflammation um, patients ask a lot about fish oil probiotics um, not very strong data either mm -hmm. way on those probably not hurting might help might not um, and that's what I find with a lot of these supplements is they may not hurt. They, we just don't have a lot of data on them. I always recommend that the patient checks with the physician first or a pharmacist, both preferably, just to make sure that there's no interactions with any of the supplements that they are taking in their medications. But I do think that there's a role if a patient wants to explore more natural options. I do think we have to meet them there, our team and a more holistic approach. I think there's room for both. Right, and I, and I think that's important. Again, getting back to the reality of meeting the patient, expectations, being realistic. So these some of these natural supplements, like you said, may not have a lot of evidence-based data to support their use in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, but maybe the patients are on them, so us guiding them and telling them this won't hurt you, may not help, or 
maybe there are certain things, like you mentioned, turmeric, which in at least colitis has been shown possibly to play a role. So then switching gears again to you know the team, you've, you've really integrated into the team, you're a vital member. How, do you, how does a dietitian play a role in the overall care team in the IVD medical home, but in general, how does the dietitian play a role in that care, care pathway? Yeah, well diet is obviously important for IBD. Like you said, that's usually one of the first questions our patients yeah. ask. Um, and I think it helps to have the dietitian right on the team. Um, for a couple different reasons. One, in that the, the patients can see us both at the same time. Mm -hmm. So because these are patients that are chronically ill, they miss a lot of school, they miss a lot of work, it's helpful that they can see us all in one place. Another um, benefit is that sometimes, you know, you might refer someone to a dietitian in, the, in uh, like a physician's office and, yeah, 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 I'll go. And maybe it, it's hard to follow up in between all of their tests and appointments and infusions and things like that. But when you're kind of faced with, here's the dietitian, and you can talk to her if you want, people are kind of more open mm -hmm. to hearing about the diet and IBD. Some people are very interested, some people want nothing to do with diet changes in IBD, but I've found that having a dietitian right there um, makes it a little bit less intimidating to speak to a dietitian and talk about diet. And the other thing that's helpful is when we are in the room together, it helps us not ask so many of the same questions over and over. So if they saw the physician and they're asking all about what they're eating and about their bowel movements, and then an hour later they have to see the dietitian and answer all of those questions again, um, that can be a lot for the patient. So it, it gets them in and out more quickly. And we also have a better understanding of the overall plan when we're in there together. So from a dietitian perspective, if there is a stricture or a fistula or the disease is active or we know that surgery is on the horizon, those are all very important to my nutrition care plan. Um, so it's good that we have a plan before the physician leaves the room and the dietitian continues on with the patient. On the reverse side, there are certain patients that I'm following up with more frequently mm -hmm. um, that might be on a very difficult diet. So we're doing virtual visits or things like that um, in between their visits with the physician. And that allows just another touch point for the patient and the physician. So if I'm talking to somebody and I notice, you know, all of a sudden they're having a lot more bowel movements or some, something going on, that allows me to send that information back to the physician. So overall, it just improves communication within the team and really goes back to putting that patient at the center of the medical home. Yeah, I know, and I, I like that the patient-centeredness that you talk about and the team approach. I think sometimes the dietitian is first line. Mm -hmm. We'll hear things that we may not. You mentioned virtual visits, so in our IBD medical home, the fact that we're seeing patients remotely, keeping them at school in their home, mm -hmm. having you actually meet with them regularly that way has been phenomenal. Um, I also thought it was funny the other day, you mentioned the patients wanting to see you when I walked in the room and you, you, had, you were finishing with another patient and the new patient knew that there was a dietitian part of the team <laughs> and I came in and they said, well, where's the dietitian? So me as the physician meeting them, they really wanted to talk yeah. to you. So I think that really drove it home that diet is important uh, and this team-based approach. So maybe the, the final part is just um, some take-home points, but specifically to the community physicians. So we work in this kind of specialized IBD medical home. We're trying to expand to medical neighborhood population health, including our primary care, including our region. 
but how does a dietitian or how should the community, what's the take home uh, points for the community physician or provider seeing a Crohn's or colitis patient from a dietitian standpoint? Um, I think a lot of times patients don't make their way to a dietitian until they're malnourished, until um, we're thinking tube feeding, TPN, those kind of new, big nutrition support, big, big life changes for a patient. Um, so I would recommend get a dietitian involved early. So if mm -hmm. you're seeing somebody with a new diagnosis of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, there are community dietitians um, all over and to get one involved as soon as possible. Even if there's somebody that's overweight and looking, you know, you, you don't have a ton of nutritional concerns, it's good to one, kind of have them on their radar in case things, um, they start losing weight and things like that. But two, we know that things like the Mediterranean diet and even weight loss can reduce inflammation. Yeah. Um, so even if a patient's overweight, um, losing weight or starting a Mediterranean type diet can help with symptoms and can help with the inflammation. So I would say get a dietitian involved early on. Um, don't be afraid to start building relationships with the dietitians, referring patients that you think might not need a dietitian necessarily, um, just to get them involved early on in the process. Yeah, so I think that take home message of proactive planning, mm -hmm. including diet as part of the treatment Definitely. for the community provider, working with dietitians, whether it be in the community, whether it be at a center where maybe the dietitian's doing virtual visits like Definitely. you are, um, I think that's important. But we know diet's key. We know that's what patients want. We as physicians realize that's important. So we really appreciate what you've done for the medical home and thanks for everything. Thank you for having me. Let's now listen to Dr. Regero's interview with Dr. Baljit Ball, a primary care physician at the Cleveland Clinic about the role of the primary care physician in the medical home and medical neighborhood, including best practice approaches to collaborate with specialists. So Dr. Ball, you and I have been talking about this medical home concept and new models of care, building a medical neighborhood at Cleveland Clinic. I know right. other specialty population healths are occurring across the country. Mm -hmm. Given your expertise, our partnership, also from a primary care standpoint, mm -hmm. tell me, what, what do you see the role of the primary care doctor in a, a specialty medical home like the IBD mm -hmm. medical home, but more broadly in this neighborhood concept? So I think the role of the primary care doctor is really quite central in all of this. Um, oftentimes the primary care physician is out in the community where the patient lives and as a result they're often the first touch point for the patient, their point of access into the medical care system. The question of the concern they have might be about their specialty disorder but they're typically going to reach out to their primary care physician first. And so I think the primary care physician can be very central in helping to manage and orchestrate the care of these patients. Once the, once the patient has made contact with the primary care physician in the office, I think then our responsibility is to try to make it as easy as possible for them to access the medical care that they need. And that's where I think the medical neighborhood becomes incredibly important. So, so I think that's excellent. I think that as we come together from a specialty and a primary care standpoint around the medical home and medical neighborhood, as you mentioned, this divide is becoming less and we're becoming more centralized and it might be virtual. What, what can the gastroenterologist do for the primary care doctor in terms of educating or partnering around these neighborhoods and homes? So from a PCP's perspective, how would you look at that? 
So I think the biggest uh, benefit that the specialists can give the primary care physicians is availability and access. Um, and that may not be access in terms of the patient employment, but really more access to gain information and knowledge to help teach the primary care physician or guide the primary care physician as to what to do next for the patient. Um, and then allow the primary care physician then to again interact with the patient out in the community where they live to help build that bridge between the specialist and the patient. Now, sometimes that interaction may end up requiring the patient to go in for a specialty care visit, but oftentimes these are issues that can be handled primarily through the primary care physician, really making it as easy as possible for the patient. So I think access and availability really are the key issues uh, for, the, for the specialist to help provide for the primary care physician. Great, so it's almost like you want that easy button, if you will, yep. for the primary care to push the button to have the specialist, and access is a big part of that. Obviously, here at Cleveland Clinic, but nationally, this is a big touch point that's being discussed across the healthcare, uh, not only from a healthcare reform standpoint, but a healthcare in general. As a PCP who takes care of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, mm -hmm. what can we or what can the specialist gastroenterologist provide you? What are some of the critical information you need to help you take care of the IBD patient that you see in your office? So I think every disease state has sort of its typical either screening, preventative, or um, monitoring testing that, that needs to be done, whether that's inflammatory bowel disease, whether that's congestive heart failure, whether that's chronic kidney disease. So I think for the primary care physician as a specialist, as an IBD specialist, if you can provide information to the primary care physician and say, along the way, here are the milestones, here are the touch points, here are the preventative screening tests that need to be done and at what particular intervals, I think then the primary care physician can often help avail, uh, arrange those for the patient and then help provide that information back to the specialist to continue their care. Great, so almost the, the healthcare maintenance, the best mm -hmm. practices, and maybe we set this up electronically, and I know we've done that in our IBD medical neighborhood Correct. here at Cleveland Clinic, almost a checklist of maintenance activities that the primary care doctor would provide for the patient. Mm -hmm. So the Crohn's patient that may live uh, in the community not want to come into main campus to mm -hmm. see us for their uh, vaccinations, for example, Correct. that's something that the primary care doctor could uh, could engage in. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about the, um, what, what does the primary care, what would you say an aspect of the primary care physician that would help the gastroenterologist help engage in the medical neighborhood, mm -hmm. but then maybe talk a little bit about the work that you've done in the digital technology. So I guess PCP, how can the PCP help the GI in the mm -hmm. medical neighborhood? And then this aspect of digital technology improving care. So I think the primary care physician could be very helpful, and as you said earlier, in sort of checking off those boxes. Was a pneumovax given? Was a bone density scan done? Was the patient set up to get another colonoscopy since it's been two years, or whatever the appropriate interval may be? And I think that's really where the primary care physician can help augment and, and, and help the specialist um, in the care of that patient. Um, obviously, in this day and age, many of us look at the electronic medical record as an opportunity to provide that interaction between the primary care uh, physician and the specialist. If they're sharing the same EMR platform, they can both be in the patient's record looking to see actively what each other, not only what they're doing, but what they're recommending and also what needs to be done for the patient, particularly in terms of a health maintenance reminder um, and, and screening tests. Um, but we have to remember that not everybody has an electronic medical sure. record, um, or perhaps maybe more often we have different medical records, electronic medical records, that don't communicate back and forth. And I think that's where probably the other challenges come in in terms of communication. 
we've looked to solve the problem of primary care to specialist communication at the Cleveland Clinic by using the electronic medical record, specifically within our Epic Medical Platform, using a process called e-consult, electronic consultation. In areas where this may not be feasible because of different EMRs or no EMR, I think then really it's, it's incumbent upon the primary care physician and the specialist to be in constant communication in whatever modality works well for them, whether that's written communication, whether that's verbal communication. Um, I think that's really how the care of the patient is really moved forward. Good, and I like the e-consult. I mean, to your credit, mm -hmm. I know you've set a lot of that up here, working mm -hmm. with the primary care doctors, the specialists. Mm -hmm. I think in the IBD medical neighborhood, we might be one of the first to look at this at Cleveland Clinic, but the e-consult is not mm -hmm. new. But this idea of bringing the specialists and primary care together mm -hmm. virtually around the patient mm -hmm. where they are, often in the primary care office, I think has been tremendous. And mm -hmm. some of the work at looking at that for the future technology mm -hmm. and where we can apply this, mm -hmm. maybe even nationally would be very interesting. So I guess a, a final thought or a final concept I have is how do we bring this to the community? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the uh, community physicians, not only in Northeast Ohio, but across the country, mm -hmm. may not live even an hour or two away from a specialty center. They may live further away. What's the idea, where do you see it from a PCP standpoint, mm -hmm. vice chair of the Department of Medicine, mm -hmm. thinking about these kind of global thoughts, mm -hmm. how can we connect and scale better? How can we get our community primary care doctors engaged in these new models of care? So I think that's really the big challenge is how you reach out far into the community. It's much easier to do it locally, uh, particularly when you're all part of the same healthcare system, but how do you reach out distally, just in a distance perspective, to get to people out in the community? And I think that's a challenge. I think we're still, as we move forward, going to look at the electronic medical record as really the platform to do that. Um, I think we're going to have to develop better ways to get differing EMR systems to communicate um, so that information can be transmitted back and forth, not only in terms of around the idea of the medical home in different areas of specialty, but also just in terms of the care of the patient overall. And we all recognize that when we see patients who have been to other healthcare systems and we can't gain access to their medical records because of the differing EMR. So I think as there are national initiatives really looking at sort of consolidating electronic medical information in a fashion that can be accessed readily at different healthcare sites. I think that's probably what's going to help drive this more than anything else. Great. So I think key take-home points that I hear from you as a primary care doctor and somebody who's looking at the future of medicine really comes down to this team of teams, the idea of bringing the primary care and the specialists together around a disease also the health maintenance aspect. Mm -hmm. So from a primary care standpoint, often much better than a gastroenterologist or a specialist looking at these checklists, but mm -hmm. having the gastroenterologist communicate what's mm -hmm. important for Crohn's or ulcerative colitis exactly. and really having the primary care follow through. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the final is, as we look at these medical neighborhoods, mm -hmm leveraging digital technology, leveraging more modern approaches to maybe the EMR, but this e-consult idea I think is really novel. And so maybe as I ask you for any of your final take-homes mm -hmm. beyond what I said, um, I really appreciate what you're doing. I think Thank that you. from a primary care standpoint, this is what we need to do. And it's really not as much centered around the physicians, it's the mm -hmm. patients, but really the primary care doctors are usually the first line of, of care. Mm -hmm. So final thoughts that you have as we look mm -hmm. to the future. 
I think primary care and specialists have always partnered together. Um, you know, in the old days it was by telephone or in conversation in the hospital hallways. Um, I think now as we're moving more distant, distant from each other, um, as we're spreading out into uh, different communities, I think we have to come up with new ways to once again get back to that communication, that direct communication between physicians around the care and management of the patient, really to make it as easy and seamless for the patient as possible. Now we'll hear from Dr. Magid Risk. Associate Director of the Cleveland Clinic Accountable Care Organization, who will speak with Dr. Reguero about the development of IBD medical homes, including business-related aspects and the use of digital technology. So Dr. Riss, thanks for joining me today. You and I have spent a lot of time looking at these new models of care, the IBD medical home, the IBD neighborhood, as a gastroenterologist, but somebody who has an MBA and has really thought about the business of medicine, I'm so excited that we've been able to come together around this and form really what I think is something unique. As we look to launch this uh, program, not only here in Cleveland, but others look across the country, what do you see as some of the care benefits and cost benefits to these medical homes, to these new neighborhoods? Talk to me a little bit about how you look at the care and the cost and value-based treatment in general. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks, Miguel, for having me here today. You know, uh, as you know, IBD accounts for over 1.5 million patients uh, in the United States per year, uh, 700,000 uh, uh, outpatient visits, 100,000 hospitalizations, 100,000 ED visits per year, and in total accounts for about $6 billion worth of care per year. And so, you know, there is a, a there is an impetus around uh, diseases that are chronic, where there is no cure, but where we are managing as of right now, uh, you know, possibly from the cradle to the grave, uh, to be able to find better ways of uh, providing care for those patients, uh, reducing the amount of disability. Uh, some estimates uh, are as high as 120,000. Uh, patients per year have disability because of inflammatory bowel disease and uh, improve the value proposition for uh, healthcare organizations and for the U.S. economy in general. And so uh, I think, you know, uh, there's an opportunity uh, with inflammatory bowel disease uh, as well as other chronic disease conditions to be able to do that. Yeah, and I think, so you, you touched on some really important things. We talk about this value-based proposition, but I like the way you put it in the context of this is a systemic disease and it can be disabling. So not only the impact of the patient's quality of life, obviously what it does in terms of potentially depression and the stress, but what it does to the workplace, to their productivity. I mean, these are things that we don't think about that much. And when we talk about this value-based proposition, this team-based care, really trying to work with the payers around this, I think that's important. And, and I think the financial piece is critical as well. Absolutely. I, and I think it takes stakeholders looking at things different than the traditional perspective in terms of uh, how money is spent, where costs are accrued, and uh, being able to quantify some of the intangibles that sometimes get lost in terms of productivity, mm -hmm. in terms of lost work. And so I, I think, you know, I think employers are inter interested in this. I think payers are interested in it. I think the U.S. Uh, government is interested in it. So beyond just the healthcare 
profession, I think, I think there's wide interest in being able to look at these diseases differently. And you've done a lot of work on alternative payment models, risk models. Where do you see these specialty medical homes, neighborhoods, <coughs> IBD specifically? Where, where, how does that work? And, and when you talk about payers and government and that type of thing. Sure. So, you know, yeah. inflammatory, while there's 1.5 million patients in the United States with inflammatory bowel disease, it's not like hypertension or diabetes or heart disease. So, you know, in order for a medical home to really um, be, uh, to address populations that are that specialized, it, it really requires either the ability for an organization or a medical home to scale, or it requires uh, it to be in an area where there's significant population density. And so, um, in terms of uh, scaling, uh, this can be done either through digital uh, healthcare platforms. It can be done through uh, a variety of different other, uh, you know, resource resource intensive uh, plat uh, platforms. Having said that, you know, when when, when a group or when organizations thinking about doing a, a medical home, there are significant upfront capital expenditures mm -hmm. in the form of those. Uh, digital technologies, in terms of the electronic health records, in terms of creating that infrastructure. In addition, there's operating expense that really goes into it as well, in terms of the, uh, the human cost that's involved in developing a multidisciplinary approach that is patient first and is focused in terms of one-stop shopping for the patient. Because we know that with inflammatory bowel disease, nutrition plays a role, psychosocial issues play a role, um, uh, you know, care coordination plays a role, pharmacy plays a role. And so it's important to, to understand that that operating expense is extremely important. So, so, that, so you need scale or you need high population density in order to support that upfront capital expenditure or that, uh, and that increased operating expense. You also need a partner, you need partners that are, uh, that are responsible for high cost care. So whether it's hospitals, mm -hmm. emergency departments, or standalone uh, emergency departments, uh, emergency uh, room facilities, uh, and you also need partners where low-cost care is performed, and you need to be able to be able to create a proposition where, by decreasing utilization, decreasing resource um, use, that everyone wins financially somehow, and so that requires a payer that uh, is interested in creating those types of alternative care models. And there's different structures, but the basic components are there's a high upfront cost, there's a high operating cost that needs to be supported by sites that have a vested interest both on the high cost and the low cost side, and a payer who's willing to kind of bring those things together. That's great. So the reason I love working with you is you're able to not only explain the care team model of a medical home, but really the financial part and put it into a payer provider perspective that not many people can. So I commend you on that. So the digital technology, let's just touch on that for another minute and then get into some of the policy angle of medical homes and the future alternative payment models. So I like the way you put it, this scaling and connecting. And, and one way to do it is obviously high density population. The other is to work in a scaled way. You and I have been working on this weekly now, looking at the medical neighborhood or electronic medical platform, 
Where do you think digital technology is today in terms of these medical homes and neighborhoods? And where do you think it's going to be tomorrow? What's, what's this going to look like to us? So I firmly believe that digital disruption in healthcare is at the Atari phase of, <laughs> of, of, of where gaming it was, right? And I think that there is a lot of opportunity. We're still early on. Um, currently, we're working on simple um, fixes and with simple workflows that are mostly internal and eventually and don't require artificial intelligence, right? At a very basic level. We want to eventually get to a point where we have artificial intelligence being able to allow us to drive care, customer relation management in a way that allows for um, external as well as internal interfacing, uh, uh, interface with the patient in a complex fashion. And so I think that, you know, you know, there was a time with uh, you know with video gaming where if you wanted to play somebody, you had to literally he or she had to literally be in the in the room with you. And now, you know, you can just go online by yourself, and you're playing against the hundred hundreds of different people every day, every moment. And so I think we're going to start seeing that type of propagation and algorithmic lo logarithmic growth in terms of uh, digitalization in healthcare. That's great. <clears throat> You're too young to remember Atari. For those out there that may not know how old that was. 5400. I do remember the 7200. <laughs> but, but I do agree. I think we're on this precipice of disruptive technology. I, I really think from remote monitoring, the way we use artificial intelligence, natural language mm -hmm. processing, mm -hmm. algorithmic care, standardization of care, we're really just on that cusp. And while we're doing great things today in terms of linking everybody to, together, tomorrow is going to look even brighter. So maybe finally, let's end with, with some policy discussion in terms of policies around these medical homes, medical neighborhoods. I know you've spent a long time thinking about that. Where do we, where, what, about these, what about the policy part of this? Also, at, at governmental level, uh, I think there's been uh, you know, a lot of our, our, for example, with our Stark laws, for example. Our Stark laws have been created for, in, in a, for a fee-for-service environment. And so there's a lot of language in there that's been, that, that really revolves around not being able to, that really discourages uh, collaboration in a fashion that would be consistent with an alternative care model. And so we're seeing changes at, at a national level, uh, you know, around Stark laws, around different types of interstate uh, collaborations, in terms of interstate licensing, um, in terms of uh, within organizations. The very idea of being able to use, to text a patient, right, requires, uh, you know, standard operating procedures and policies and, you know, to what degree are we going to be able to have conversations around PHI and uh, be able to communicate through text messaging and how do we know that the person on the other side is the person that we think he or she is. And so um, I, I think there are policies that are in gradually being put into place uh, at all the different sites. I think our vision is greater than where we're at right now. I agree. And so it's sometimes it's, uh, it can be frustrating at times, but I think uh, it's also a great opportunity for us. Uh, and hopefully in the next few years, I think a lot of these policies will catch up to where it's, we need to be. And then how about for the, finally, the community physician? So a lot of yeah. times I, you know, you and I talk to community practices 
physicians that may not have access to centers like Cleveland Clinic or live very remote. And um, almost, almost or it's an overwhelming time in terms of this change. And I sometimes hear the community physician almost disengage from this whole narrative saying, you're at the, the ivory tower, you're at the major mecca center, this isn't gonna apply to me. But I actually disagree with that. So from the way you're talking, what should the community practitioner be looking at in terms of today and tomorrow around these care models? The community practitioner is probably where the greatest benefit is going to be moving forward. I think the, the ability to bring complex care and complex uh, care management that's both uh, standardized as well as personalized is going to be vitally important as uh, the cost structure, as high fixed cost um, facilities, hospitals become more and more difficult to manage in remote locations. Right? And so I think uh, being able to do that is going to really be the lifeline for the, for the referring dog in, the, in remote areas. I agree. And when we look at 90% of IBD care is still not in tertiary or quaternary centers or medical homes or neighborhoods. So, Dr. Risk, thank you. Thank that you. was excellent. I really enjoyed it and uh, I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Now we will hear from Mandy Leonard. System Director of Drug Use Policy and Formulary Management and the Department of Pharmacy at the Cleveland Clinic. Talk about value-based care and cost savings in the context of the IBD medical home. She will also share tips for overcoming obstacles related to payers. The first question from Mandy is, how may biosimilars lead to cost savings in the context of an IBD medical home? Biosimilars are approved by the FDA in comparison to the reference product. For the FDA, biosimilars have no clinically meaningful differences from a reference product in safety, purity, or potency. Therefore, biosimilars having the same dosing and administration usually are less expensive compared to reference products, and many insurance plans are covering biosimilars. Therefore, using a biosimilar in an IBD medical home may create savings opportunities depending on the insurance. Patients will have to check with their insurance to make sure that their insurance company covers the particular biosimilar. If they do, this may mean a lower out-of-pocket expense. For example, there may be a lower copay. Next question, can you discuss value-based care as it relates to biosimilars, biologics, oral therapies, and immunosuppression? What could this mean for the IBD medical home? I think this is a unique opportunity from a pharmaceutical perspective or medicine perspective. The IBD medical home would allow better coordination of care, especially for the monitoring of the efficacy and safety of medications, which could include the medications listed, such as biosimilars, biologics, oral therapies, and immunosuppression. In addition, having the IBD medical home, if other medications are introduced into the patient's therapy, they could also be monitored as well. What challenges do you foresee with payers in obtaining prior authorization in the context of an IBD medical home? I think for starters, it's important to know whether or not the patient's insurance company will cover the biosimilar. With the recent advent of biosimilars, some insurance companies are still requiring the reference or brand product to be tried first before moving to a biosimilar. Therefore, it's greatly important to know that before prescribing a biosimilar to a patient. 
One thing to note about the prior authorization process is that if a patient has a prior authorization for the brand name product and there is going to be a conversion to the biosimilar, a new prior authorization is needed. This is important for timing processes as sometimes prior authorizations can take quite some time to obtain. Do you have some tools or tips you would recommend to address roadblocks by payers or others to approve therapy? I think it's really looking to see what other hospitals, institutions, or others in the country have done to show that biosimilars can lead to overall reduction in costs in patient care to show them that biosimilars are okay to use. Let's close with some best practice tips. What can community clinicians do today to improve cost savings in the care of their patients with IBD? In closing with some best practice tips, in my practice area, I work in a large health system. And thinking about it, it's this coordination of all kind of care, which would relate great to an IBD medical home. I think there has to be communication with all players in patient care, whether that be prescribers or the physicians or the nurses that are taking care of the patient. And I think one of the things is to stress there are cost savings opportunities for patients that we can recommend. Last but not least, you can hear all of these concepts tied together in Dr. Ruggiero's visit with Aaron, one of his patients who has ulcerative colitis. Aaron, thanks for coming in today. I know that we're starting off with your diagnosis of ulcerative colitis, and we're looking at you know, what this means for you going forward. But some of what we're really interested in is now looking at preventive health, mm -hmm. not only from vaccines, but some other preventive health issues. Let me ask, and, and just start by asking, because we're probably going to need to put you on an immunosuppressive, a biologic, some type of medicine that may affect your immune system. Um, have you had any vaccines yet? I have had, uh, I've had the flu shot. Okay, good. And, uh, but other than that, a maybe a tetanus shot years ago, but that's about it. Okay, good. So the, the flu shot is something where I'm happy you got. Uh, we usually recommend that once a year. We like for people who are starting immunosuppression not to use live vaccines. So the flu influenza shot is inactivated, mm -hmm. where the nasal form of the flu vax is live. So the fact you're getting the flu shot's perfect, we'll keep going yearly. Okay. How about the, the pneumonia vaccine, the pneumococcal? Have you had that yet? I haven't yet. Okay, no, that's okay. So the pneumococcal vaccine's important. We realize that strep pneumonia is something that can affect uh, especially people who are older, but all of our patients. And we usually recommend the PCV13 is kind of the first shot for pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And then at least eight weeks later, we do the PPSV23, and then we do that every five years. So we can talk about getting you started with the pneumococcal vaccine, and we can even start that today uh, in the clinic. Okay. Um, and then how about, have, did you have chicken pox as a child? Do you remember? Yeah, I okay. Did. okay, so one thing we'll do also today is check a varicella antibody. It's a blood test. Mm -hmm. We now know that even if you've had chicken pox in the past, if your antibody's negative, there's actually a live vaccine for chicken pox that we can go ahead and give you today as well. Okay. Um, and then you mentioned tetanus, or you might have had that. Do you know when you last had the tetanus shot? Uh, it might be more than 10 years ago. Okay, so it may have been a while yeah. ago. So tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, we actually recommend that every 10 years. We can give that to you today okay. too, get it out of the way. 
you'll be good for another 10 years. Great. Another thing we screen for before starting any immunosuppression is hepatitis, not that you would have ever had mm -hmm. hepatitis, but do you know if you've ever had a vaccine for hepatitis A or B? Not to my knowledge. Okay, so we can check blood work for that today. So if you're positive for hepatitis A, meaning you've been exposed to it, sure. maybe you didn't know it, um, that's something we can vaccinate you against. Hepatitis B is very important because immunosuppression can reactivate that. So if you're negative for hepatitis B or if it doesn't look like you're immune to it, we can actually go ahead and vaccinate you against that. I don't think you have hepatitis sure. B, but we can check that as well. Um, and then other vaccines, have you had any, do you know about the shingles vaccine? Have you had anything related to shingles? Have you heard about that? I've heard that? of the vaccine, I just haven't had it. You haven't had the shingles. Right. Yeah, so the shingles vaccine, we now recommend for anybody who's 50 years or older, we're actually starting to think in IBD, some of our medicines may be, bring out the herpes zoster, the mm -hmm. shingles. Uh, there's a new uh, inactivated vaccine for shingles. It's two doses over a two month or 12 week period that we can give you. So we can even start you off with that today. Um, that's right. inactivated, but that's something that we can, we can do as well. Um, so those are, those are kind of the vaccines that we look at. Good that you've already had the flu. Mm -hmm. We can work on some of the other ones as well. Um, but let's, let's shift gears because IBD is not just about vaccines and prevention. Right. Tell me a little bit about your story, kind of how you have, how you came upon IBD, what happened before meeting me and, and how this really impacted your life. And that might help me frame the next part of your sure. health maintenance. So I'm an, I'm an active guy, uh, three active, very active kids. Um, I came across, I came across uh, uh, my IBD symptoms by I was training for a triathlon and I noticed that during the training I was developing some symptoms, some bleeding, some irregular bowel patterns, those types of things. And I figured, well, I, I, I did the triathlon in a lake. I figured that <laughs> I swallowed some lake bug and I gave it a couple of weeks. When that didn't go away, I knew I had to get something done and uh, that started me down the path. Um, I think it's it's good to be self-aware of what your body can do or what you should be aware of what your body um, how do I want to say this it's it's good to be aware of your body's normal functions so when you're out of that that frame or out of that um, mindset or out of that health wellness piece I think it's, you need to be you need to seek some guidance and that's where I was um, it wasn't working. The initial person that I went to see wasn't wasn't doing a lot. Uh, Might have been another scope, and that's why I sought you. And you had been on steroids, I think, a lot. Tell I me, had been, tell me about the steroids and how that affected you. So I had the prednisone. Um, I think at one point I was up to sixty or eighty milligrams. So pretty high dose. It was a pretty high dose. Um, it it affected me. I wasn't able to sleep. You know, I had the rage type piece of it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, my mental health wasn't as uh, where I wanted it to be. Um, I developed the moon face, uh, wasn't sleeping, you know, overall my day was just bad. You know, start to finish my day was bad. Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and, and I, I knew at that point I needed to have a different intervention. 
And you mentioned the, the kind of how it made you feel physically, the steroids, sure. and also mentally or emotionally. But let's, let, I want to pick up on a physical part sure. of it, too, because I know you're a triathlon, mm -hmm. you're extremely active. I know that's probably kind of affected you musculoskeletal. Sure. One of the other screening things that we can do if you haven't had it already is a bone densitometer. And I don't know if you've had that or not, or if you've heard of Just x-rays, but nothing I'm open else. to having. So we can do that as yeah, well. So the bone densitometer or the DEXA is, is important as well, mm -hmm. especially for somebody like you who had been on steroids. Right. And because osteoporosis, osteopenia, bone thinning can occur, we'll go ahead and get that done today mm -hmm. as well while you're here. Um, let me shift though, you mentioned the stress and kind mm -hmm. of the, what the steroids did, but the IBD itself, we, we screen now for stress, anxiety, depression, things that people don't like to talk about. People don't like talking about their Crohn's or their ulcerative sure. colitis either. But how did, how, does, how did, you mentioned the emotional, how does the disease impact you emotionally, the steroids, and, and what, what can we do to help with that as well? Well, the ulcerative colitis impacted me uh, in a, I felt a very detrimental way. It impacted me socially, professionally, and personally. Um, and it wasn't until I kind of got down the path and identified a diagnosis and identified treatments that I realized, hey, you know, I'm getting something out of this and my life, my quality of life is definitely improving. Um, I, it, professionally, um, being in healthcare, I would have to use the restroom up to 30 times a day. Uh, that was impactful on me yeah. and my career. Personally, uh, I couldn't enjoy a dinner with my wife. I couldn't enjoy dinner with my family. Uh, road trips were questionable. You know, those, those are, you had to plan ahead for those things. And uh, the, mental health, the mental wellness piece of it, I could never shut off. Um, I, if it wasn't the prednisone, or if it wasn't the, it wasn't the steroid, it was the constant thought in the back of my mind, am I going to make it right. to the next rest stop? Am I going to make it to the next room? Um, and it never left my mind. Yeah, so I think you've, you've said a few things that, that I've heard from a lot of my patients. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, this is an impactful disease. It affects your quality of life, your relationships, your family. Um, some people naturally, because of the disease, will have a lot of anxiety or sure. get depressed and kind of be in a bad spot, especially when you're flaring, missing things you like mm -hmm. to do. So one of the things that we've done in the medical home I'd like to talk to you about, and you filled out some of the screening questions today on depression mm -hmm. and anxiety that we now do routinely. We have a healthcare team that includes a psychologist, a social worker. We're really looking at not, not just the person from a physical standpoint, but the whole person, the mind, the gut, how the relationship works. So um, I'm glad you're so open to that because sometimes people don't like talking about it. And I think that's, that's one thing I'm picking up on you mm -hmm. is that you have a lot of self-awareness that you mentioned earlier. Um, now, as a triathlon, you're probably out in the sun a lot, right? So Absolutely. Then, and let's talk if about it's your, not racing, it's training. <laughs> so yeah. let's talk about your skin care. And you may mm -hmm. or may not be aware of this, but um, what do you do for, do you do anything for sun protection or? If I'm on the beach with the family, uh, definitely. Um, you know, melanoma runs in my family. Okay. So I have to be aware of that. Um, but as a, as, a, as a daily activity, no, I'm 
Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about the skin and why I asked that, because mm -hmm. some people say that's kind of a strange question, talking about Crohn's and ulcerative mm -hmm. colitis. So we do know that basal cell cancers, squamous cell cancers seem to be higher in IBD, and some of the immunosuppressive therapies we use bring that out a bit more. So what we really recommend is not just when you're at the beach, but daily basis, some of the, the kind of the creams that we have now, you can put on SPF 50 or above, mm -hmm. That's what we work with our dermatologists. That's what we would recommend. Um, not only just for the medicines we may use in you in the future that have immunosuppressive effects, but the IBD alone. So, so especially a guy who's so active like you are. So I know that the disease impacted your ability to train before. Mm -hmm. um, tell me, um, you know, hopefully once we get you in remission, what are your goals for future triathlons and what do you want to do? Oh uh, boy, uh, first and foremost, I. Uh want to take my wife away on vacation <laughs> and really enjoy just a, a, a renewed personal relationship um, with family and friends. Secondly, uh, I have to look at the Ironman. I have yeah. to look at the half iron and, and a full iron. You know, I want to, and I want to raise awareness for these things. I want to know, I want people to know there is, there's life after diagnosis. That's great, and I, that, that to me is inspirational. As a physician, I love to hear that, and getting you back to full health so you can do those things. And I imagine as you train for these and being so active physically, you don't smoke cigarettes. No, absolutely okay. not. Good, nope. So, because smoking we don't like, absolutely. Uh, and we want to stay away from because that can impact disease as right. well. Um, well, I, I think you're off to a great start. I think, you know, we'll get you better with the medicines. We'll get you back to enjoying time with your wife and your family, the triathlon. Um, I think the health maintenance part we covered, a lot of the vaccines in the medical home today, we can take care of a lot of that for you. Um, we like this one-stop shopping. You've noticed today mm -hmm. as you meet different people. Uh, we not only cover the diet, the medicines, the nurse practitioner, health maintenance, vaccinations. The other part of this is we now have set up virtual visits. So mm -hmm. I know you come from a distance, you mm -hmm. had a hard time even coming in here today, sure. yeah. that in the future we can do these almost like Skype visits. That's part of our whole person IBD medical home. Um, so tell me in closing, what, uh, what else do you want to get out of the visit or in life in general? What's your uh, future aspiration? Um, normalization of life, getting back to my, the old me, um, pre-diagnosis or pre-disease identification, um, and uh, I just just a better sense of, of wellness and health. I think that um, there's more to life than inside of a bathroom stall. Great. Well, I, I think you're going to be well on your way. Aaron, listen, Absolutely. thanks for uh, coming in, and, and we'll take good care of you. Absolutely. My privilege. That concludes this podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and can take what you learned and apply it to your clinical practice.